Well, greetings, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. This is episode 59, Deep Work. We're going to work deep today. We are broadcasting live, well, live for us, from the Power of Change Worldwide Headquarters here in Blacksburg, Virginia. Jesse and I are listening live to this music. We're dancing, we're bobbing, we're weaving. We are back together after a couple of weeks where mm. we had a lot of shrimp on the barbie or some really good Australian brother with us here in the shed quarters, did we not? We did. And Reese, if you guys did not listen yet, God, Reese Pozan, fantastic interview uh, with him about uh, Edwards. John yeah, Edwards, the first modern mentor. That's right. That's right. Very, very helpful. Even if you're out there and you do any mentoring or training or leadership development, um, kind of some of the ideas there, very contemporary and practical for That's right. Us. You don't have to you don't have to even be interested in Edwards. Yeah, no. No. Found that in, you know, at least interesting, but the fact that he was a good mentor and the principles yeah. shared by Reese will be helpful to you. Now, I haven't seen you. We've texted a little mm. bit since uh, he was here and then the Virtue Conference with the Bonhoeffer House took place, right? That's right. All it right. happened, man. Yeah, it was really nice. It was good. We had uh we had Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor she came and gave a talk on uh, on reading well, cultivating virtue through, uh, well, really through reading well. And then Hannah Anderson, uh, who wrote um, All That's Good and Humble Roots before that, she spoke on uh, really, uh, I really appreciated hers. It was about uh, developing your palate for what's good. Mm. So like the idea that discernment, really becoming more virtuous people, isn't just about staying away from what's bad. Right, just not, it's about... Not just not eating Ben and Jerry's, but developing but a desire learning, for learning what makes Ben and Jerry's good. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So you can, you know, you ever been around? I was just at a. I want to do a shout out. Roasters next door, R and D Coffee in Roanoke. If you're, if you're okay. in the Roanoke area, you should go there. I was there today getting a uh, a cup of coffee, and I saw he had this. Um, he had this like smoke system. Oh, and do you uh, have any like bacon or pork belly in there? No, or? so so <laughs> well, no, you he could though, right? So I got this latte that was a it was a smoked wow cinnamon apple latte, and oh. he put it in the it was and, but anyway, like the idea is is you kind of learn what's good and you figure out what tastes good, and so then you can really appreciate things. You develop kind of a a palate, a palate. for virtue. Yeah, so she spoke on that, and then Reese, of course, spoke on uh, on mentoring as a pathway to cultivating virtue. It was really good, awesome, so fun being around uh, those three. Really, uh, to to have the three of them in the room together was it's you know it's odd. You've got this Anglican Australian guy. He's a canon, yes, yeah, a canon, yeah. yeah. So go back and listen if you want to find out what a canon is. And then you've got um, Hannah and Karen, who they're just different worlds, and seeing them all come together was fun. Wow, wow. Well, I haven't heard that yet. I heard that they sent you the audio like <laughs> on a Frisbee disc been, or something. And uh, It's taken me a while. <laughs> I, I meant to have that all those talks up, but they, I got them in CDs, and I realized yeah. I don't have anything that can, <laughs> can play the CD. Or burn this. Uh, so I, I just handed them mm-hmm. to our, uh, our worship director at, VB, at our church and said, can you Give me some MP3s from you this. Figure this out. Yeah, like a lot. Yeah, of hopefully they'll be up by the time we post this. Yeah, many yeah. many yeah. laptops no longer have optical drives, That's so right. it's hard to deal with CDs as an overall in the world. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've been. Uh, How on about the, you? What's up, man? I've been on the road, man. I just got back from Amarillo, Texas, where I've been singing a George Strait Amarillo by morning. I've been singing that to my kids for a week before going. I'm sure there, they love that. They they I word out on them as a <laughs> father should. And uh, I went to Amarillo last Friday morning. I had a great time. I did a men's conference. I, I had four times, spoke four times in, on a Saturday, and then did two Sunday services. Did some 
staff development with Redeemer Christian Church. That is a shout out, brothers out there, mm. Redeemer Christian Church. Great time with them and a little Acts 29 lunch and then got back uh, really, really late and then finally rolled into home yesterday exhausted and saw like 15,000 pairs of shoes in my house. And I'm like, what is this, man? Some people, some people don't have any shoes. Why do we have so many shoes? And I asked my wife that because I'm sensitive and caring, right? And she's like, your son's feet are growing so fast. He's had like three new pairs of like tennis shoes in mm. like in like a matter of months mm. and i was like oh i'm sorry we need to she's she like and we're gonna donate these i'm like i'm a jerk yes. Please forgive me i'm glad i'm home <laughs> <laughs> oh any but I, that that's yeah. that's not the most ridiculous thing that i've said but certainly one that i said recently well our first segment today is going to be our ruts and butts ridiculous things under the sun and beautiful things under the sun and certainly I found many. I've actually restarted my my folder file in Evernote on ridiculous and beautiful things. And the ridiculous thing, Jesse, that I saw recently is that this is great, right? The American Library Association has something called Banned Books Weeks. You know, like where once a once a fall, I guess it was late September. They, I think it was September. Let me see the dates on this. September twenty second through twenty eighth, banned book. Now the idea is like, hey, we like free ideas, intellectual freedom. It celebrates that. But the thing that was ironic that I kind of thought was funny is that like during banned books week, we celebrate books that you can buy on Amazon dot com. It's like. This is this is uh This is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is ridiculous. Yes. It is not uh not banned. There are no book burnings in the square in Germany happening in America. But I guess it's a good idea to have a free uh, culture where you can exchange ideas. The really, really though, the books that are challenged, if you look at the American Library Association, it's like parents complain about books. That's really what's happening my, today. My favorite one is the number three most challenged book. <laughs> Captain Underpants. Captain <laughs> Underpants. Yes. For for a really good free society, you need to make sure you need to, you read, need to read Captain Underpants. Yeah, so the par- whole series. Parents, if you want to challenge books, do so. <laughs> this isn't banned morality week. It's just books. Nothing's banned. You can buy them all. A little bit. A little bit ridiculous. Well, my beautiful thing, Jesse, is a matter of relativistic perspective. In other words, you may not think this is beautiful out there if, for for instance, you've subscribed to the philosophy of veganism. Uh, my beautiful thing this week is the New York Times, right, in October, published an article about health risks for eating meat. Now, this is kind of beautiful to me. Because obviously I like uh, using my red box. I do follow. Yeah, I follow you on Instagram, and so I, I know you do like meat. I do like to smoke some meat, but this is uh, in the annals of internal medicine. This is a journal said red and processed meat consumption and all risk cause morality of cardiometabolic outcomes. A systematic review and meta analysis of cohort studies. Now here's the beautiful thing, Jesse: eating meat may not be bad for you after Woo! all. Ooh, all right, well. We are going to do something That's beautiful in our uh, beautiful life and, and eat a ribeye uh, to the glory of God mm-hmm. and hope. To Have you used your smoker to reverse sear anything yet? Any steaks? I've done two times reverse sear ribeyes. And man, how were they? And it's well, you friends. Yeah, tell us about this. We're going to have a little this segment. This is another beautiful this thing under the, the sun. Uh, this is the smoked meat segment of the Gospel <laughs> Underground podcast. A reverse, a reverse sear. You know, typically when someone cooks a steak properly, you, you know, sear it recipe, first, you right? Hot, you hot, hot, hot sear it on each side so the juices stay in. You finish it off in an oven or something yeah. with some lower heat. 
Well, reverse sear is you cook it low and slow, and it doesn't take that long actually to get it up to rare temp. I think it's low hundreds or something uh, for a ribeye. So you're smoking it, so all that flavor, whatever wood you're, you're using, you're still doing is, that at two twenty five. Yeah, you're doing that at two twenty five, bringing it up slow, absorbing the flavors from you know whatever you're using, pecan wood or apple wood. And then once you get it to rare temp or medium rare, if you like a well-done steak, uh, that is a very problematic thing to like in the world, but some people do. Uh, so if you get it up to rare temp, you pull it off and you either use a hot grill or a, a griddle or a skillet or whatever on your stovetop, and then you, then you sear it at the end. Mm. So you get all the smoke flavor. You get that crusty crust on the outside from the sear, and you Beautiful. keep it from being well done, and you enjoy it deeply. And you throw some ketchup on it. Uh, well, <laughs> did I t- do you know this about me? You don't put ketchup on your steak. I, well, I was about to make a confession that I do and have since I was like six years old, and you just mocked it so beautifully, like my parents embarrassingly mocked me. For, you go through all that work. Oh, you do all that no. work, and then you put ketchup on your steak. I went to a steakhouse in Amarillo. I ate half the steak first because you eat it as properly prepared by the person you know who knows how to make meat, and you enjoy it. And then the last half I eat with ketchup because I love ketchup on do some you, steak. Do you let people see you when you yes, do that? I do. do you hide? I do it because I'm bold. Do you and, ask for a back room? And I, and do you I have a ketchup room? I don't give way to peer <laughs> pressure. I don't fear sometimes, the world. Sometimes peer right. pressure is good. It is. But um, well, people ke- use that mm. A1 crap on steak. That's terrible. Uh, yeah. Um, ketchup, I agree. Heinz ketchup <laughs> in moderation mixed with ribeye juices. So, so good. Well, Jesse... Now that we've got I'm our so conversation, sh- I'm so shocked. <laughs> now that you are judging me, it, it, mm. um, it is not sophisticated, not Ruth Chris style, but I would do it in Ruth Chris. We are not talking Proud. about that today, right? No, no we're um, not. No, we're because not. I eat steak uh, the way I want, but we're talking about something very important today, deep work. Now, this is a title of a book, a big yellow book that you have in front of you. <laughs> it's Take right. us in, man, to where yeah. we're going. Yeah, so uh, so this week on this this episode of the Gospel Underground, we're gonna we're gonna do a bit of a deep dive. Oh no, you know what? We'll call it a medium dive. Yeah, medium dive. A we medium decided dive. to do three weeks on these topics instead of one. So that's right. So and some things are so deep they take multiple episodes, right? Take multiple deep. Yeah. Work. So so we're gonna look at deep work, which is a uh, which is a book by Cal Newport. Cal Newport is a, a computer science professor and writer at Georgetown University in D.C. And uh, and this book, Deep Work, so so let me, before I get into this, years ago, I read a formative article in The Atlantic by Nicholas Carr titled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I, I felt confident I knew the answer to that. Um, and in that, in that, now, by the way, he went on to develop that article into a book called The Shallows, which I have not read, uh, but the article was powerful and convincing for me that the internet is actually changing us right so in, in the in the article he uh he talks about how um how much harder for him anecdotally how much harder it is for him to read long articles to pay attention for a long period of time that he you know his his attention span is shrinking he's finding himself distracted by more things or wanting distractions and uh and he goes into this really at, even at a neurological level the internet is shaping us into shallow thinking people. So according to him, uh, to Carr, that is, we're losing our ability to focus on anything for extended lengths of time. Mm-hmm. We're losing our ability to dive deep into what we read. Uh, he makes use of new research on the neuroplasticity of our brains. Basically, it was settled theory that uh, that as we grew up, uh, our brains essentially became static, right? Like. Right. 
you, you can shape your neuro- neurological kind of synapses when you're young. That's right. But then when you get old, you're just stuck eating ketchup on your, on your right. steak. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, or if you start young, you have no hope with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's ne- right. Neuroplasticity is a very interesting field of study in neuroscience because they found that things actually change the matter of the brain. That's right. By thinking on it or prayer. Even there's been study yeah. on, on certain nuns and Buddhist monks that pray or meditate mm-hmm. and it actually changes the physical makeup and wiring and structure of the brain even by using it. That's right. right. And so this is like kind of new, pretty new yeah, cutting edge yeah. research, at least when this article was written in 2008. And so, so what he's making, he's making use of this argument to say, uh, even as we're adults, uh, I maybe five years ago could have been gone deeper into reading than I can now, it be, just because of the way that I've used the internet. So, so that's right. Uh, where we continue to be neurologically shaped by our experiences, the internet, just like other technology and media, is shaping our brains. And uh, and then he supposes it's shaping us to be stupid, uh, or or stupider, um, <laughs> however you say that. So a couple of interesting things from the article. He makes use of uh, Marshall McLuhan, and so are you familiar with McLuhan? A bit, right. Yep. So yep. Uh, his famous maxim is the media is the message. So um, uh, Neil Postman was influenced by him. If you've read um, uh, what's what's the book here? Read uh, Neil Postman, amusing ourselves to, to death. death. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, for him, it was television, uh, which is what he's taking on. McLuhan is is really making the case that we think media is this sort of neutral, neutral delivery deliverer system. of yeah. a message, and actually, he would say the media is the message itself. That uh, and so, it, which has some interesting implications for us theologically, if we think about, um, you know, God did not just send a a note to us; he actually became flesh for us in the incarnation. Right. But we could cover that another yeah, time. Yeah. Uh, so he makes use of that, and then and then he he actually shows how technology throughout time mm-hmm. shapes people. He uses uh, the mechanical clock as an yeah. example. So in that he talks about how, uh, say before before we had clocks, we just our lives were lived a certain way, and and it was it was more dependent on you know when I'm hungry I eat. Right. I don't eat at noon. I eat when I'm hungry. And the normal built-in rhythms of the natural world yeah. of the sun coming up and down, the earth going around That's the right. sun. That's right, the sacredness so of the world yeah. around you. Yeah. yeah. Oz Guinness has a book called Prophetic Untimeliness. In the beginning of that, he's challenging relevance. The church is always trying to be relevant. Mm. And he's saying that we got to be untimely to be uh, prophetic in the world. But in the beginning of that book, he does a uh, study on time and clocks. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and he, he talked about how the, the trains, the the uh, invention of one technology really uh, created a, a really need for everyone to have clocks and watches that were kind of synchronized, right? So if you've got to catch a train, you got to know the five o'clock yeah. train is there. And you got to be, your your clock has to be the same as the That's right. one of the train and stations. And so, you know, timekeeping in Europe, for instance, was very influenced by the rise of locomotive transportation. Mm, yeah. So, so really he talks about, you know, this is the printing press, the clock, you can kind of you see where technology yeah. shapes us, and uh, and and for me, I re- went and reread this article this this morning, and uh, this eleven year old year old article, it's almost um, it's almost quaint now, right. like eleven years ago. Wow, <laughs> so old. I didn't have Instagram. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have the brand newly released iPhone at the time. So now, this is two thousand eight. Now, now, wait a second. Oh no, no, you're talking about newly released back then. Back you're then. not saying you have an iPhone eleven. No, 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 okay. no, no, I, I, I don't okay. I know. Like, Show me your new iPhone. No, but the, but you know, the iPhone, when did it first come out? 2007, 2007 right? Yeah. So, uh, still very cutting. I was still reading long form Atlanta 
academic articles on my laptop, right? That had a CD drive, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so so now you read it, and I just think, of course, the internet's changed us, right? right. Of course, we have Twitter now. Is Twitter making us stupid? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, of course, our minds have become more shallow. You know. Uh, that snuck in on the Trojan horse. The, the internet has a lot of blessings, modern technology, a lot of blessings, but there's kind of sneaking in as it's making us uh, yeah, more shallow. Yeah. Uh, so, Reed, let me ask you a question. When you think about the internet, social media, e-technology, which you, you think about a lot, when I think, who, who do I want to talk to about this? I think of you. Uh, what are some of the good things that, that that technology has brought us? Yeah, I mean, I am kind of... Uh, um when I do conferences for parents on technology, I say I'm a techno opti- optimist, but also a little bit suspicious and uh, nervous about it. And so I do love it. I think there has been many. Um, I was in college in a computer science department when the invention of the Mosaic web browser was coming about, and it was all about to move publicly into the world much more. And so um, some of the good things the internet social uh, has given us, uh, well, I, let me think. I think some of the good things at least has given my life. I can in Instantly connect with people all over the world to see how they're doing. When I know a, a church planting friend in Houston is launching a building and he's exhausted, I can say, hey man, how you doing? Uh, my mom can see kid pictures of our kids at any time and track with them at a distance in an amazing way. I can manage my whole small business nonprofit power of change from a phone in my pocket. Uh, today, you know, some checks from friends who support our work came in the thing and I take a picture of them. I enter them into the accounting system and I deposit them in my bank from my a device that's in my pocket. And so all these things I think are, are, are wonderful and enjoyable. I have a full theological library on my iPad where I can study the original languages of the Bible at a touch, right? And and and, and that doesn't preclude having expertise in them. It helps and, and adds to that expertise if you have it. So I think there's, you know, the access to information, right? Yeah. That we can study yeah. any subject we would like, maybe shallowly, <laughs> maybe not as deep as we once did trying to track through a library, but even indexing and searchability of information and, and works and finding bibliographical information so much quicker and easier now. That's good. Yeah. And I, and I, the reason I wanted to get you to tell us the blessings is because <laughs> right. I knew you would have right. an answer ready, right. but also because it's I, all terrible. <laughs> yeah. Because I think that when we talk about deep work and, and, uh, and later, if we, if we do, if we're talking more in depth about the practices of disconnecting from the internet, social media, yeah. uh, we can, I think there's a danger of going to the extreme, becoming Luddites, you right. know, we, you know, uh, wanting to tear down the technology and go back to some simpler time. Or yeah, something. I was just thinking today, walking downtown Blacksburg about when, when they were inventing like the cotton gin or, um, mechanized factories for manufacturing, did they feel the same way in nervousness about we do about artificial intelligence? Mm. And the difference I thought though, was that in terms of those factory, they were replacing human brawn, but still required human intellect. Um, some of the stuff coming now, robotics and artificial intelligence look to replace both, which I think is a bad idea. Right. But maybe I'm just afraid, like they were afraid yeah. of the, the cotton gin or something. Yeah, that's good. Well, so with, with Newport's book, Deep Work, which I recommend. And he's a computer scientist. So, he's a computer yeah. scientist. So, so this, this brings us to, to Deep Work. Uh, this summer, I actually led our church staff team um, through this book and uh, studying it. And, and Newport, uh, really what he's trying to do, I think, in this is, is not not advocate for the answer to this shallowing of our minds is to, it's not to just give it up, right? It's not to just destroy the computers. um, Get rid uh, of electricity. That's right, yeah. But it's actually, uh, what his argument is uh, that 
that we need to cultivate practices that help us to become work, help us be able to go deep in our work. And so let me define deep work and shallow work here. Yeah. So, so he says deep work is professional activities performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that push your cognitive capabilities to their limit. Uh, he goes on to say that these are, these are, uh, these are things that create value, uh, improve your skill. They're hard to replicate. So uh, when you cultivate deep work, you're making yourself more valuable. He then says shallow work is non-cognitively demanding, logistical style tasks often perform while distracted. Uh, they don't create much new value in the world. They're easy to replicate. You know, anybody can do that. Um, so, he, you know, and he said... The things you do when you're procrastinating from doing deep work. Is yeah, so yeah, the things you do when you've got, you're doing maybe two things at once. Yeah. You're looking at your phone, but you're also doing this. Or, uh, you know, and he's, he says in the beginning that he's not interested in making a philosophical argument, which he actually is. is. Right. So, so uh, <laughs> and which we'll come around to that. But he's trying to make a pragmatic one. Uh, really what he's trying to say is um, the shift in our culture towards shallow work and, and just being shallow exposes this massive, here's a quote, exposing a massive economic and personal opportunity for the few who recognize the potential of resisting this trend and prioritizing depth. He goes on to say, you know, uh, if you are kind of the kind of person that can get deep in your work, focus on your work, you are making yourself increasing, increasingly valuable in our economy. Uh, and so, and then you'll, and then you'll thrive. What do you think yeah. about that? Well, I, I've noticed over the years comments from all types of fields of, uh, activity economics, uh, in terms of business people, as well as ministry people that, that we may re- roll with at times that, you know, you can't speak for too long because the kids can't pay attention That's right. or your blog entries are too long. You need to write shorter blogs because if it's more than a screen, people aren't going to scroll and they're lazy now. And I've always uh, tried to be a resistance against that thinking, well, we want the kids to read, be able to read good, right? Uh, we want to have schools that help our kids read good. So we don't want to uh, shallow out everything for the sake of uh, ease, um, you know, movies like uh, the Pixar movie Wall-E, right, where everybody's kind of stupid and mm. lazy and everything, floating around, floating around because they little, can't walk yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. Or the Mike Judge movie, um, Idiocracy, Idiocracy, where the you know professional wrestler is president. They can't grow crops <laughs> because they put Gatorade. It's not Gatorade, but they're whatever drink brand it is because it's better than water. You know, so they start <laughs> watering the crops with it, and all the crops die because the soil's too alkaline and stuff. So there are this idea that if you know, keep it simple and shallow and all that stuff but what if everybody does that then so i've kind of uh, reacted in my heart against that and tried to put medium-sized blog entries up when people say not to but yeah it's uh i think that hype now is it an opportunity well i know i know that more and more even people are talking about curated content today on the internet um even just today there's a new uh, sports website called the athletic that i'm talking about with some of my friends that are hiring really good journalists to try to to do deep thought analysis of a, your favorite sports world and not just have something that's littered with ads and trash yeah. that's just distracting and so i think there is a, a desire now for curation people who actually know what they're talking about not just people spewing on the internet to have thoughtful careful work right which requires deep thought and not just shallowness uh, available today. And I think people are going to pay for it even in, in, in 
terms of internet content. Yeah, that's right. So, and then, and then I think what what, he, what Newport's doing here in this book also is saying, in addition to the type of content that we create and curate, even just someone who's trying to get a job, you know, working uh, as a recruiter or working in middle management or something, you know, straight out of college or or it really. They're they're making themselves more valuable if they've learned how to disconnect and think and think yeah. and solve problems and and not be distracted and I, and I certainly think uh, I agree with that hypothesis. Yeah, that, yeah I do too. Uh, so he suggests that in our new economy, there's three groups of people with an advantage. Uh, one is those who can work well and creatively with intelligent machines. Two is those who are best at what they do, and three are those with access to capital. Basically. You're going to succeed if you're rich, right? So, so he says, listen, I can't help you with that. So let's, let's cut that one out. And, and then he says, uh, he says, cultivating the ability to work deeply will help you with those first two. Yeah. Uh, he says there's two core abilities for thriving, the, the ability to quickly master hard things and the ability to produce at an elite level in terms of both quality and speed. So, so really what he's saying is it, it's, it's counterintuitive. You think... If the world is getting more digital, it's getting more, you need to be more connected and more online, uh, that he's saying, actually, you should disconnect some, learn to go deep. And by doing that, you'll, you'll actually be able to work with intelligent, uh, with, with intelligent machines better than someone who's just constantly distracted, right. but on intelligent machines. It's, it's like when people thought that actual multitasking was good for the human That's being right. to do. Like, I'm going to do six things at the same time, and you do none of them well. Yep. And you rewire your brain in a negative way doing so, but the ability to focus. Mm. I mean, with, yeah, so, that's right. with so much grabbing our attention, the, uh, just the mere ability to focus uh, I do think it's be a massive advantage for yeah. people. Yeah, that's right. He he says um, uh, thinking that giving a kid an iPad uh, in school is going to make him more prepared for uh, inter- working well and creatively with intelligent machines is like giving a kid a, a Hot Wheels car and saying this is going to make him a good driver one day. Right, like, right. Or well, a mechanic, there, car mechanic. Yeah, there's some there's some connection there. You can see it, but it it actually doesn't do the job. Uh, so the rest of the book is his argument that cultivating deep work practices will help you gain those two abilities mm-hmm. uh, to quickly master hard things and to produce at an elite level uh, so that you can become the best at what you do. And, and so he, he then, let me give you the quick outline. He says yeah. deep, deep work is rare. Right. Um, so I think that's, he, he makes a good case there that as you look around, um, what you see is you see that most people don't have the ability to go deep and, and, and really uh, spend hours at a time trying to master things and understand things and solve problems and define the problem well, right? Yeah. Many times we are not defining things well, so we can't we can't come up with good and creative solutions. That's right. Yeah. So uh, you know, and he starts by saying deep work is valuable. That's kind of what I've been talking about. It, there's value in the market. There's an economic value here. Deep work is rare, which is further supporting that. And I think there's I think it's true. It, uh, then he says deep work is meaningful. Uh, so it does seem that he's making a philosophical argument after all. And this yeah. in this section where he says deep work is meaningful. Like for the human being for doing the, human, the work. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 So he's, he he starts with this example of a uh of a blacksmith who is, you know, spending hour after hour just kind of working on this uh this one thing that if he doesn't if he if he hits it just wrong if he doesn't hit it on the anvil just right yeah. if it's not heated up just right he's going to break it i never ask you these kind of questions jesse but i don't even know what kind of tv guy no tv guy you are but do you have the history channel at your house 
I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, me, my son and I have got into this okay. show called Forged in the Fire. Okay. That we kind of watch uh, together about blacksmithing, making swords and knives yeah. and historic weapons and stuff. And we, uh, and in fact, on the Gospel Underground, one of our early episodes, I don't That's know right. which one, we did a Liam Hoffman blacksmithing as a beautiful thing under the sun. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, and absolutely, that what a great example to talk about doing deep, focused work that has excellence uh, and craftsmanship involved. That's right. Yeah. He he and. Uh, just as a recommendation for for the book, he does a good job of using uh, anecdotes. Right, he's using stories. He's u- using this blacksmith to, to show uh, how this isn't just meaningless, mindless work. It's actually meaningful craftsmanship. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, "Deep work is meaningful because it helps us live a good life." So uh, he talks about um, uh, this scientist Winifred Gallagher. Could be pronouncing that wrong. Uh, who she had a... Winifred uh, Gallagher. <laughs> that is probably the right way to do it. <laughs> so she, uh, she had a, um, she had a, a cancer um, uh, diagnosis that in it she realized uh, when I focus my attention on my, my illness, my, I don't, I'm not happy. But when I focus on other things, I can become happy. She ended up writing a book uh, called Wrapped. It's really about rapt attention. It's about, uh, she says, the skillful management of attention. And by rapt, we mean R-A-P-T. Rapt. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not a, a, a book on the, on the history of rap, rap in America. Hippity hop. Uh, hip hop. Um, she says, a skillful management of attention is the sine qua non of the good life. This is what the good life is all about. It's how we get it. And the key to improving virtually every aspect of your experience uh, so basically, she's saying there's scientific research that what we focus on uh, will will determine our happiness and, and the ability to to actually focus on the right thing. That's right. So 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 deep work well, that con- that connects deeply with the wisdom tradition of the uh, of the Bible. Right? Yeah, it's like yeah. knowing what's right and good and true and being able to have our devotion. Think on these focus. things. Yes. Yeah. Think on these things. Yeah. yeah Philippians four. So. Yeah. Uh, then he talks about, so the good life, then he talks about flow. So this is from, no, there's no way I'm going to pronounce this dude's name right. Yeah, man, that's, it looks, I don't know what that is. Siskinski Okay. Uh, he wrote a book called Flow. Yeah. And in that book. Let's call him C. C. An author named C wrote a book called Flow. And he says the best moments, now, now think about this. This is true, isn't it? He says the best moments of our life, right? He's saying, listen, our best moments usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. Mm. And so and when I read that and thought, man, that's so true, isn't that's it? Right. That's like right. the, the times where you're, you're pressing either physically or mentally taxing, but it's, but it's voluntary. You want to be there. You want right. to learn this. You want to figure it out. That's why if you're friends with any like published authors or anything and, and they their book comes out. It's like they're it's like showing their baby off on on Instagram or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because wow, they've to write a book is an intense, focused thing to do over time, and to see it come into the world has to be some one of the more gratifying things for a published author. Mm. Yeah. So then he talks about under this idea of this meaningfulness of deep work is that we recover sacredness. I thought this was really interesting. Uh, we can recover sacredness through craftsmanship. So he kind of revisits this idea of the craftsman. And he says that uh, the task of the craftsman is not to generate meaning, but to cultivate in himself the skill of discerning the meanings that are already there. Uh, that's from a, a book by Dreyfus and Kelly called All Shining Things. They're, 
uh, philosophers, I think at Berkeley. And so what really what he's saying is um, the autonomous self that the, that the modern enlightenment world has, has created us to be, we've dis, disenchanted the world. The world is, not, is no longer sacred. We create our meaning. The meaning has to come from within. And uh, there, There's kind of an interesting um, line of thought that comes out of that in terms of 21st century you know, Western civilization. If you look at, say, the 20th century where the Industrial Revolution really took root in the things that uh, we create, we created, say, assembly, uh, you know, forward creating yeah. assembly line. So it made cars uh, producible and affordable to people. And so the obsession, right, with efficiency, efficiency. right, has yeah. taken over. Now, that, that in itself can be a very good thing. Like, I like it that I can efficiently run my business. Yeah. So I have time for other things, right? You know, hanging out with my wife or, you know, going to get brunch or whatever. Um, but the it seems like there is a, um, a corollary to this, perhaps, where if you look at robotics and artificial intelligence as kind of hyper-efficiency, um, we start to eradicate... Um, we start to eradicate uh, people. There maybe. are no more humans. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, we start to re- eradicate yeah. humanness, right? Yeah. About who we are, what we are, and the enjoyability of seeing something beautiful created and not just something created really fast and efficient where the blacksmith making a knife or an axe is much different in his production than, say, like a factory pressing out knives in mass. Yeah, and, and what he's what he's getting at is... If we can cultivate the ability to work deeply and really become craftsmen, so this <clears throat> this doesn't really matter your vocation, right? Uh, but to to see your vocation, your calling as a call to become a craftsman, uh, that what part of what that is is rejecting the idea that I think the sh- the shallowness of our of our age and and of really of the internet and it, it cr- creates in us this drive to uh, to generate meaning by how many likes I can get by what I can, what the information that I can get and, and feel better about myself. The, or, or rapidly creating experiences that might, you know, give me a, right. a jolt or yeah. novelty. Yeah. But if we can, if we can view things as craftsmanship, then we actually are recognizing that there's already meaning that, that our meaning, we can find meaning, uh, not by generating it, not by, you know, sort of grasping at it, but seeing it, uh, I think there's some really profoundly Christian ways to understand this idea of craftsmanship. Yeah, yeah. Which we'll come around to in a second. So yeah. let me just do a flyover here because we're going to dive into the practical way to do this in a future episode. He talks about uh, four rules. One is to work deeply. Uh, two is to embrace boredom, which I thought was really interesting because <laughs> how much of our distraction is I cannot stand 30 seconds of boredom. Of nothing to do. Got to get right. my phone out of my pocket again. Right? Yeah, it's actually, I, when I read this the first time, I was very convicted at this point at how often I, I did started doing some screen time analysis and mm. even just thinking about uh, giving myself little challenges. Yeah. Can I wait in line for a cup of coffee without getting my yeah. phone out? And what we call boredom in a modern world, some of the more ancients would, would call silence and solitude, right? Yeah. And being alone with one's mind and God, mm. right? Uh, man, good things happen when, yeah. we can, when we can do that. Yeah, yeah. So, and then rule three is to quit social media. So this is a maybe a more of a uh, controversial one. Another one within that that I think is... Which we'll come around to this, but he uh, he advocates uh, this really kind of monastic way of dealing with email, mm. where he uh, he will take um, he just sometimes he just won't reply to emails, right. like if they're not specific and 
uh, and asking. Anyway, we'll, we can come back around. And I ask. know some people that do that to me. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't reply to my emails. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk yeah. about that. And then number four, drain the shallows. You know. Uh, um, uh, so we'll, yeah. So is that like draining the swamp? Is that what that is? <laughs> drain the shallows. Drain the shallows. So like trying um, to get rid of shallow activities from our right. lives. Yeah. 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 Figuring out how can you in your uh, daily and weekly life, um, how can you create more space for deep work mm. by by draining some of the shallows. Yeah. Uh he you know throughout this he he gives I appreciated this. He gives three or four different ways to do this so there's not just a one size fit all fits all. One is the uh the monastic way. So that's someone um you know not everybody can do this. Like he could probably do it where He's you introverted you with your go own away thoughts. For, that's yeah. right. And maybe you even just go away for like 2 months in the summer. Yeah. You know and you write your book. Right. Uh uh, not realistic for most people, but some people can do it. He talks about a bimodal way, which is um, which is more of like maybe you could do one day a week, you know, where you're where you're just you're isolated, you turn the phone off and you you do your thing. He talks about a rhythmic way where you, bimodal meaning like okay, I'm going to do a day here where I'm just crushing I'm just, minutia, shallow stuff. That's right. And I switch days, modes. I, yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Yep. So I switch. I'm in, I'm in my deep work mode, and then I go back to my regular right, life. Right. Uh, he talks about a rhythmic way. Uh, he uses the illustration of a guy pursuing his PhD at like four thirty in the morning. You know, every morning from you know five to seven, he turns. A, it, there's no distractions, and he's just deep for a couple hours, and then his life. and And there's a lot of shallow stuff. Um, so that's what you're going to do when you pursue Doctor Fury. That's PhD. right. Yeah. No, it, probably a mixture of these. You know, one of the things that uh, in in the next episode I'd love to talk about is um, how how do we uh, apply some of these practices? What yeah. are some of the most uh, maybe what's unrealistic. Love yeah. to get into that email conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what is maybe even unloving, yeah. right? So you mentioned the email thing. Like, man, how how awful does it feel when you've sent a couple emails to someone that you you think should probably care about you, yeah, and and you care about what you're writing them about? That's right, and time. you just don't hear anything back. Yeah, one of the things that Newport has done, he's written written a second book called Digital Minimalism, and Jesse and I are going to take some time to go after that one here in the next few weeks. But we just felt like this topic, um, introducing it to y'all was a good idea yeah. to say, hey, we this is important for us to work in the modern or within the modern world. But yet there's going to be a lot of specific uh, application to your own life and story. And how do you do that? How do I do that? And Jesse and I are trying to do this. We're, we're learning about it yeah. and we're trying to do deeper work. And so uh, next episode, a couple of weeks from now, we're just going to talk about like what are some structures of life and maybe even tools from the modern world that could help us do uh, bimodal or rhythmic or monastic, whatever way that fits us best, deep work in our own in our own day to day. Yeah, that's right. And 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 I just I want to uh, one of the the great values I see in this uh, this idea of deep work and what Newport's done for us here, and um and and I I don't think that this is um really when you think about it and you if you read say uh the life if you if you read about the life of Jesus mm-hmm. in the gospels and the new testament you know you, you see someone who's doing some deep work you don't right? see him on his iphone that's right <laughs> that's right well, and, and there's there's the distractions that he has the shallows that he has um are are purposeful right so like you right, can't get away right, from that right, right. you you know 
you're going to, there's changing diapers and there's having small right. talk and there's, there's just, there's, there's tending to things. There's it's, people it, there's coming like up and commu- to you. in communication theory, there's just factual exchange that has to happen. Yeah. Who's getting that kid yep. from there? Who's doing that? Who's That's buying right. Hey, my food line. What do you need, Casey? That kind of stuff. But then there's also, Hey, what are we, how are we saving for college? I think right? there's a rich, yeah. a rich ancient practices, biblical practices of, yeah. Uh, cultivating silence and solitude, uh, yeah. which really that's what this is talking about is how is, is modern practices that create space for you to have silence and solitude, which he's making the argument will actually make you a better worker. I agree with him. Yeah. Uh, I also think that there's uh, this can be, we can think about this and talk about this in terms of um, how to, how to live Christianly in the world or yeah, yeah. Uh, live in a way that uh, makes an impact beyond just an economic impact where I'm making myself more valuable to a, a right. company, which I think is, is, is not a bad thing to do. Yeah. Nobody's, nobody's against being able to get a job. Right. But, 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 but maybe even has, there's layers here where, um, where, where my, my, my parenting yeah. is so, you know, I, I, I was reading this thinking, how often am I distracted with my kids? Like their experience of me, I don't want them when they're 20, 20 years from now to talk about, yeah, that was great. But he was I can all, never get his attention. That's right. My kids uh, called that when I was on Mars. Dad's in email Mars. He's in book Mars. Yeah. He's not focusing yeah. on so, me at all. So man. yeah, I, I love the idea of taking this and thinking through um, as we try to live faithfully in the world. Uh, how can we work deeply? Not just it, well to make ourselves better and more um, really better at our jobs, better able to do what God's called us to do vocationally. Right. But vocation involves also our families and our churches and our. Yeah. Our, our relationships with our neighbors. And, and so, uh, so yeah, I think there's much to recommend here. I'm excited, Reed, to get into this a little bit more with you in the weeks Yeah, because I think we'll be helping each other as brothers to develop, uh, to merge the ancient and the modern into the future so that we have a meditative life uh, that deepens our relationship with God and others and the expertise of thought about the work God has given us to do. So, yeah, man, two mm. weeks, we'll jump into that. And then we're going to to take on digital minimalism and how much of the uh, digital fluff and chat. How much can you get rid of? Can we get rid of? So thank you, Jesse, for introducing us to the work of Cal Newport. Thanks, friends, for joining us today on The Gospel Underground. The Gospel Underground is a joint production of Power of Change and the Bonhoeffer House. Review us, please, on iTunes. We only accept five stars. It works really well when you put that in there. Send your comments, feedback, and or questions that you might want us to take up here. In fact, thank you, Jared Lynn of Crew Global, Brown University, and Puerto Rico now, who recommended us to engage with the work of Cal Newport and digital minimalism. Jesse, you took us to deep work, so I thank you for that. Jared, we'll get to that later for you. We are a dialogue taking place in the borderlands between the church and culture. And we hope you see you out there. Peace. Peace.